accomplished or bring, but all because of the finished work of Christ, the all-sufficiency of Christ. We thank you that we come in him. That, Father, we have confessed faith in Christ. We have recognized that we are sinners uh, in our own right, worthy of death. And, Father, we are hidden in Christ. And how we thank you that our sins are forgiven that we are gathered as your people, that we are as righteous as Christ, his uh, righteousness imputed to us. Father, thank you for this group of your people in this particular place, that you know each one by name, that, Father, I am um, a guest, I am an outsider, but, Father, you know each and every one. You call your sheep by name, you care for each one by name. And Father, we know that there are many concerns and health issues and various things that are before the congregation. And Father, you know them with exacting detail. You know even before we request by prayer. And that you know all that we need. And we pray that you would supply all that each of these dear saints needs. Father, some are returning to school for the um, uh, fall. Some are going off to college for the first time. Uh, Father, in various stages of education, we pray that you would care for them as the school year begins. Lord, some are um, struggling in body, and we thank you that you care for us not only in soul, but also our bodies are united to Christ that you redeem us body and soul, and though our bodies see decline and decay, that our tent wears away, we are so thankful that we are being renewed day by day, and that you do indeed care for our physical afflictions. We pray that you'd raise up those who need to be raised up from their sick beds, that you would care for them. And Lord, we pray that for all of us, our eyes would continue to be taken to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we turn our attention to the reading and especially the preaching of the word, we pray that you would build up our faith as was already prayed that uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, not only the reading, but also the preaching of it. And I pray that you would bless our time together to those ends, that we would be transformed, that we would be different people having met with you this day. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, if you would like to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, we will take up that very familiar passage, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. And as you're turning there in your Bibles, just a brief introductory word um, uh, about myself and why this message. So uh, I am the professor of biblical counseling at the Reformed Presbyterian uh, Seminary here in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I I got coffee with your pastor uh, maybe about a month ago, and he was picking my brain about my PhD dissertation that, Lord willing, I'm defending this fall. I I can see the DR period in front of my name in the horizon, right? I'm so close. I've been in uh, PhD studies uh, coming up on six years here, so looking forward to finishing and defending in the fall. But my PhD dissertation is on a reformed understanding of the demonic, Uh, And I know that some people get really excited about that and want to talk to me, and other people want to go running when they hear that, and uh, I trust I'm, I'm, I'm safe. You can talk to me. I'm not one of those crazy people who's always talking about the demonic. Uh, but your pastor was picking my brain over coffee about my dissertation topic, and he's like, this is fantastic. As, as we talked for an hour, he's like, would you be willing to come uh, when I'm on my vacation, and you can preach on the demonic? I'm like, Matt, that's kind of weird. I, I don't... <laughs> 
don't think that that would be my introduction to a group of people if I had my choice. And he said, no, no, anything on that topic would be great. So I, I can throw your pastor under the bus, right? That's why, that's why I'm uh, taking up this topic today. He requested it. It's not by my choice. So you can take it up with him when he gets back. Now, I love your pastor. I'm thankful for the opportunity, thankful to open this particular portion of God's word uh, as we consider what the Apostle Paul, what the Holy Spirit has to say to us about an awareness of the dark spiritual realms. And in 21st century America, this is not something we like to think about. It's not something we really talk about. And yet, uh, if we really start seeing it throughout the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, an understanding of the dark spiritual realms is all over the pages of Scripture. And that doesn't make us charismatic and, and go to excesses. It just makes us aware, and then we respond appropriately with the biblical responses that, that we are given, and we see those here in Ephesians 6. So with that word of introduction, let's give our attention to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Sends the reading of God's word. May he bless uh, the preaching of it, and indeed, may we see Christ this day from this passage. Well, as we think of warfare language, as we think of a spiritual battle, my mind goes to physical battles. And there's a phrase uh, that you often hear associated with war, a sentiment of war, when a, a battle is lost, but the war is not yet over, you might hear the phrase, they may have won the battle but they've not yet won the war. Or the battle may be lost, but the war is not yet over. You've heard that phrase. Uh, as I was trying to track down who is the originator of that quote, uh, the internet says George Washington and says Napoleon Bonaparte and says Winston Churchill and any number of other people uh, who allegedly uh, said that for the very first time. Well, it just goes to show that it's a common thought uh, in warfare, as we're trying to rally the troops, uh, there may have been a temporary defeat, but uh, hang in there, we still can keep persevering. But in God's economy of war, it's actually the exact opposite of that phrase. It's not, the battle may be lost, but the war's not yet over. In Christ, the war's already won. 
The war has already been won in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet we still face day to day, week in and week out, uh, skirmishes. The war has been won in Christ, and yet we still are called to stand in day to day battles. And the main point that is really before us in this passage this day is individual believer, church, entire church, stand firm in the battle through the Holy Spirit, knowing that the victory is already yours in Jesus Christ. And that's worth our time this morning. Stand firm in the Holy Spirit, knowing that the victory is already yours in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll unpack that as we walk through these verses here together. But, but notice that the battle is an ever-present battle in this text. As the Apostle Paul is speaking to New Testament believers, as those who are on the other side of the cross, it's not as though the battle is completely over and there is no awareness of this ongoing spiritual battle with dark forces. No, it's ever-present and still raging. So we're called to stand and we're called to put on the whole armor of God. We're called to stand against the wiles of the devil here. And as Paul is bringing his argument in the book of Ephesians to a conclusion, this really stands as kind of the culmination of his whole argument that's gone before it. Uh, he's been talking to the Ephesians about how you're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. You're no longer under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. Uh, Christ is preeminent and Christ is victorious and the mystery of the gospel has been revealed and here's how we're to live our day-to-day -day lives as um, children and parents and wives and husbands and so forth. And then he culminates like in light of this victory in Christ and in light of this ongoing Christian life, he calls us to be aware of this victory and how we are to stand in light of that victory. So it's really kind of a conclusion or culmination of his argument here as he calls us to spiritual warfare. And when I say that spiritual warfare, it's war by the Spirit. It's war in the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Spirit. And he points our attention in verse 12, not to conflict with uh, fellow people. Our conflict is not with one another. and We feel that conflict day to day. In fact, he just finished talking about conflict that we face in households, wives and husbands and children and parents and uh, conflict even with uh, servants and, and masters and so forth. So we feel that conflict in our human relationships, and Paul's saying, but that's not the grand picture. There's a spiritual host in the heavenly places, spiritual forces. He's talking about armies, and he's pulling back the curtains and allowing us to see that there is a war raging around us that we do not see. And it brings our attention to, to that historical narrative in Second Kings chapter 6. I don't know if you remember this story when Elisha the prophet was seemingly about to be taken captive by the Syrian army and he's surrounded by the Syrian forces and his servant is uh, panicked, right? Like it's over, we're done. 
And Elisha basically says, if only you could see that those who are for us are far greater than the Syrian army, and prays that his eyes would be open, that he'd be able to see the angelic host. And Elisha's servant, that curtain being pulled back, realizes this war is far greater than the earthly uh, combatants, and there is a spiritual reality behind what is taking place in our world. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper says about these curtains being pulled back, he says this, If once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range, that the fiercest battle fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there. That is where the real conflict is engaged. Our earthly struggle merely drones in its backlash. This is the the, the ever-present battle, if you will, between light and darkness, and the war is raging. And Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's been cast down. His time is short. And Paul is calling our attention here in verse 12 to his servants, to his minions, to uh, the demonic horde, if you will, and also his earthly servants, the, the supernatural and earthly servants of the devil. And what is it that they are seeking to accomplish? Of course, we can't lose our salvation. It's not as though the believers are, are being fought against, that we might somehow uh, lose our salvation or something like that. No, it's it's to bring about suffering and a lack of joy and discouragement of every kind so that you would wallow in thanklessness, be angry and bitter and resentful, to be prayerless, to be divided between man and man, to tempt you to falter, to tempt you to disbelieve the Lord or disobey your God. Really, at his aim, it is the absolute destruction of all that is good and all that is holy and all that it is reflecting the image of God in this present sphere. That is the design of the kingdom of darkness. You see, in Genesis 3.15, part of the curse to the serpent is that there's enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we see that battle constantly throughout all of history. Reminds me of a, a portion Uh, of John Bunyan's famous tale, Pilgrim's Progress, where he speaks of Christian walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And Bunyan speaks autobiographically there, because we see it elsewhere in his autobiography, The Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. But he speaks of the devils sneaking up behind Christian and whispering in his ear in those times of great despair and discouragement. And it says that Christian could not distinguish his own thoughts from the suggestions of devils. And that was when it was most bleak for Christian in such a time. You see, that's what the enemy wants. It wants to damage our relationship with the Lord, wants us to become ineffectual, wants us to uh, sin, and by sin, we often think of it as disobedience, and yet it's warfare, it's weakness and we are being called to stand vigilant that we would not give into the advance of Satan and his kingdom of darkness that we would not give into his desires but to stand 
And that's what Paul calls us to here in this passage. Again and again, we see that phrase, stand, to stand firm, and having, all you done, ha- having done all, to stand firm and stand, therefore, the call is to such vigilance. But before we see how we stand, we also have to see who is being called to stand here in this passage. When I was um, a high school student, we went through uh, in, in my church at that time a series on the spiritual uh, armor, and we went through each individual component, unpacking each individual component and what it means applied to the individual believer. Basically, as we wake up in the morning, we should read our Bibles and we should remember uh, who we are in Christ and we should pray, and therefore we're, we're shod in this armor and we're ready for the day. And I don't believe that that's actually what the Apostle Paul has in mind, not speaking against such sermon series, not speaking against such applications of the passage, but every single one of the verbs in this passage is plural, not individual. Every single one of them is, you all, brethren, be strong in the Lord. You all put on the whole armor of God. You all do not wrestle. Uh, You all... Uh, stand firm in uh, with the belt of truth. You all put on the breastplate. You all put on the shoes. It's a corporate picture of we being engaged in the battle together as believers because warfare is not individual. Uh, if you think warfare is individual or is fought as an individual, we could tell that to Uriah the Hittite. Do you remember Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba, before he was made to go out in battle completely alone? Remember what David said to Joab? Put him in the hardest part of the battle, and then when the uh, battle is most fierce, just draw back from him? That, that's what warfare as an individual looks like. Uh, Uriah was dead. Certain death, right? No, this is to the church, corporate, that we as a corporate body must stand together against the wiles of the devil. And what is it that these arrows are that are being shot against us? Or how do we distinguish the the arrows that are being shot against us in comparison to the flesh? How do we know we're not just being tempted by our our own desires, as James chapter 1 says? Well, uh, Thomas Watson, in his book, he's a famous famous Puritan author. You can tell that my area of study is the Puritans, uh, by the way. Uh, But anyway, Thomas Watson, a famous Puritan author, in his treatment of the Lord's Prayer on the prayer of deliver us from evil, says this is how we can distinguish the flaming darts of the evil one from the flesh. The flaming darts of the evil one are sudden. Uh, These these things that come upon us out of nowhere. Uh, They're ghastly. Uh, They're of disturbing nature. And they're, they're alien to us. Uh, there's, a, there's an initially a reluctance to them, whereas the desires of the flesh are in accord with our interests and inclinations, and we're lured away by our own desires. Now, these things that are sudden and ghastly and alien, uh, these are the fiery darts, Thomas Watson says, the suggestions of the evil one. When such arrows get through our ranks, though, and pierces the heart of of someone, and someone is wrestling with their faith, and wrestling with such uh, um, suggestions, 
How is it that we as the church care for those who have been pierced by such flaming arrows? Well, our ranks close around the wounded one. We protect and we defend. Uh, do, do we not hear in the church when someone is suffering, when someone is struggling, when a particular member of the body is having a difficult time? I wish I could do more. I wish I could do more for so-and-so. Do you, do you not hear that sentiment? That's a wonderful sentiment that we would want to care for one another. But friends, we, we have the opportunity to pray. We have the opportunity to come around people, to care for them, to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, to minister to the body when someone is weak and struggling and has pierced, been pierced by such flaming arrows. We as the body are here to bleed with one another and cry with one another and pray with one another and love one another and stand firm together, shoulder to shoulder in the battle together. That's what Paul is speaking to, the army of the church together. And then he speaks of the defense. And the defense, what is the defense that we have here? And again, we could go through the various elements of the armor and in relation to each portion of the body. But, but again, I don't believe that that's exactly what the Apostle Paul has in mind here. When he says in verse 16, I'm going to try to demonstrate this from two different ways, that what he has in mind here is, is something more than just the individual pieces of armor. In verse 16, he says, Above all, uh, take up the shield of faith with which you extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Above all, above all these other elements, take up faith. Faith in what? Well, faith in all of these elements that we see here of faith in the truth, faith in the gospel, faith in uh, the righteousness that we have in Christ, faith in the salvation that we have in Christ. In other words, it's a picture of standing in Christ or standing in the gospel. Let me try and, and prove that from one other uh, direction as well, that this is speaking to us standing in the defense and protection of Christ. Paul would be drawing upon Old Testament language when he's speaking of this armor. And if we go back to the book of Isaiah, every single one of these pieces of armor can be found in the book of Isaiah as the pieces of armor that the suffering servant and victorious Messiah wears in accomplishing salvation for us. Let me prove it just by two, two uh, brief portions of Isaiah. Isaiah 11. This is speaking of the shoot from the stump of Jesse. So who is that? It's Jesus. And it says of him, uh, With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Uh, we, we see that idea of uh, the word proceeding from his mouth that's invoking the same image here in Ephesians 6. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness shall gird his loins. Do you not hear that image? That Christ, the seed of, of Jesse, the, the shoot of Jesse, is the one who is clothed in righteousness and faithfulness in order to care for the meek and those who are lowly. One other place, Isaiah 59. It says of uh, the Lord himself, he saw that there was no man to intercede. 
and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. Unto the coastlands he will render repayment. God is saying, there's no one to deliver my people. So I'm going to put on the armor of salvation. And by my own strength, I'm going to accomplish salvation for my people. And I will win the victory for them. I will pay the penalty for their sin. I will overcome their enemies. I will bring wrath upon my foes and their foes. And I will deliver them from hell and damnation. And now Paul is using that imagery and saying, the same armor that Christ used to accomplish salvation, he has clothed you in that armor. You have put on Christ. You are in Christ. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 6. And so uh, when we hear of the truth of, of what? Well, it's the truth of, of Christ. And when we hear of righteousness in this section, whose righteousness? It's the righteousness of Christ. When we hear of the gospel of peace in this section, well, whose gospel? It's Christ's gospel. When we hear of faith in this section, faith in, in what? Well, faith in Christ and his accomplished salvation. And when it says salvation, the helmet of salvation, whose salvation? It's Christ's salvation. And when we hear of the, the uh, spirit, well, Whose spirit? It's Christ's spirit. And when we hear of praying in this section, well, in whom do we pray? It's in Christ. It's all about Christ. And unlike the armor of Saul that was put on David and it was much too big and didn't fit him, and David's like, no, just give me the the sling uh, and I'll be fine against Goliath. No, no, our armor is not too big for us and is not ill-fitting for us. It is Christ who has clothed us perfectly. Friends, Christ has triumphed. Paul is saying, and in that victory, you are clothed in Christ. It reminds me of the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In a latter stanza, as Martin Luther is writing, he says this, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo do us. What does that sound like? Sounds like the ever-present reality of of devils uh, seeking to destroy. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. And you want to say... Martin Luther, what are you talking about? He is a vicious foe. He is an ancient enemy. He's far more powerful. He is far greater than us. Why do we not fear him? Why do we not tremble? For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And many people speculate, what's the one little word? Is it the name of Jesus? Well, the whole context of the psalm, a song is the victory of Christ in the gospel. That it's the reality of what Christ has accomplished So friends, do you know this victory that you have in Christ? Do you believe this gospel? As you come week in and week out to hear it proclaimed, do you never tire to hear of this gospel? That the saints' ears do not tire to hear of Christ's victory, that it's all of Christ. 
and remembering the corporate nature of this passage? Do you think of the corporate gathering week in and week out as the captain of your faith saying, come on, saint, let's continue to persevere in the faith, continue to persevere in the battle. It is a call to arms. It is a call to continue to stand against the wiles of the devil. And Paul is speaking, therefore, of the inoculative effect of the preaching of the gospel, the preventative nature of the reading and the preaching and the prayer that in places and cultures where the gospel has permeated, we see far less overt demonic activity than in lands where the gospel is not yet reached or where the gospel tides have recessed. That is to show the value of corporate gathering and the corporate worship, that there's an inoculative effect as the Lord's army gathers week in and week out. Well, if this is the defense, then what is the offensive elements that we're taught about here in this passage? We often think of the one, the sword of the spirit in verse 17, but there's actually two. He says, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. There are two offensive weapons in this context, the word and prayer, word and prayer. Does that ring a bell to you? (laughs) Word and prayer. That's what the apostles say in Acts chapter 6, that they don't want to forsake uh, the ministry of word and prayer. It's the, the corporate ministry of the teachers of the church, if you will. Uh, And certainly this would have application to our private reading of the word and knowing the word and our private prayer. We, We certainly can't dismiss that, but we can't forget the corporate context of these things, the corporate word and the corporate prayer as well as the individual. And with regard to the word here, Uh, There are two Greek words that the Apostle Paul could use to speak of word. (laughs) The one that means the content and the message, or the one that means the spoken word. And he uses the second, the spoken word. What Paul most has in mind here is speaking the word of God in this world as our offensive weapon. And friends, the kingdom of darkness hates the gospel going forth. Because the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And as the word is spoken, people are converted. And as the word is breached, further recesses of our hearts and lives are taken for the gospel. As that word is is plunged into our hearts and the Lord uses it not as a, a sword of destruction, but as a scalpel, cutting away the dross cutting away those things that need to be cut away. And who among us wants to go under the surgeon's scalpel unless it's a matter of of life and death? And then we say, yeah, yeah, please remove this. Get this out of here. And that's what the speaking of the word does, that we should speak it uh, in this present darkness and we should regularly have that word spoken into our lives. And then Paul speaks of prayer in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And we think, okay, in this context, what kind of prayers, Paul? Uh, We should be binding demons and casting them out, right, Paul? No, no, it's kind of quite basic, actually. (laughs) 
uh, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Uh, he's saying, pray, pray for those ordinary things that we pray for. <laughs> pray for the church. It's not like, oh, here's now this new way that we need to engage in spiritual warfare or something, binding demons and casting them out. Remember Jesus, when he, uh, his apostles come up against a particularly challenging demon. Uh, they're like, why couldn't we cast out the demon? He says, this one only comes out but by prayer and fasting, showing what is greater, what is more powerful than uh, exorcistic sign gifts that the apostles were given of binding demons and casting them out. What is more permanent and what is more powerful is prayer. <laughs> prayer and fasting. Fasting, which is a subset of prayer. Uh, the, the Lord is calling us to, to take up the ordinary responsibilities that we are called to take up of word and prayer. And we are to pray believingly that the Lord will indeed hear and answer prayer. And so friends, do you understand the significance of what takes place in the corporate worship week in and week out? Do you understand the significance of what takes place as we read this word and as we pray and as we pray uh, corporately as well? That this is spiritual warfare. We, we are Christ's army advancing in the kingdom of, uh, against the kingdom of, of darkness. And that this is not just a, a game. This is not uh, as though we're playing at church. This is cosmic, this is corporate, this is war. And so, friends, as we gather and you hear aspects applied uh, from the pulpit and you think, that ah, doesn't really apply to me. Are you praying for those who need to hear that particular word? Not, not in a prideful way, I don't need that, he needs that. <laughs> no, I don't mean that. I mean, those who particularly need that word, are you praying? Or as you hear the application of those who are not in Christ, bow the knee, trust in King Jesus, and you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm already converted, I don't need that. Are you praying for those who are not yet in Christ, that they would hear, that they would be saved? Do we, do we see what is taking place in the corporate gathering, in the corporate speaking of the word, and in the corporate prayers? Friends, it is so hard to think of this Christian life as war. We are lulled into a sleepiness. But war is bloody. And war is difficult. And war is demoralizing and hard and gritty and exhausting. And war involves struggle and suffering and, and even death. And the fact that war is so costly and so hard makes the victory that much sweeter. Because what is the difficulty that Christ faced to accomplish the victory? That he poured out his very blood for us. He was willing to die at the hands of wicked men, the minions of the evil one, as the kingdom of darkness put him to death in order to win the victory for us. And then he has called us to take up the same battle that as he has accomplished the victory and clothed us in his armor, the battle is still fierce and we are called to such vigilance and called to such war. And so friends, this passage is calling us to be aware of the battle that is taking place round about us, but to stand firm in that battle through the Holy Spirit, knowing that the victory is already yours in the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be so. Let's pray together.
Our Father and our God, as 21st century Americans, we don't like to think about these things. Uh, We like to sterilize these things. We like to think that these things are far less uh, ever-present and require far less vigilance. And Father, we thank you that you have called us to stand and to stand firm And, Father, you've not left us without hope and ability to stand because your Son has won the victory and you have supplied us his Spirit who indwells us. And we have all of the means necessary at our disposal to stand against the wiles of the devil. Thank you for the corporate warfare that we have. And may we take seriously this battle that we would stand together, that we care for those wounded portions of our body, uh, the church, and that we would pray at all times, diligently and vigilantly. And Father, may you give us uh, an ever-present awareness of this battle, that we would stand in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? And we'll prepare for communion, singing nothing but the